Now we get into the final plagues. The seven bulls, the last set of judgments. We are in the third set of seven judgments. This is chapters 15 through 18. In this division, Jesus pours out the bowls of his final act of judgment on the earth. This is followed by the fall of Babylon, which is all the world systems that entice the world to follow the beast. This division has a final exodus imagery in which plagues are brought down on the corrupt empires, bringing the defeat of the kingdom, which leads to the deliverance of Yahweh's people through their Messiah, Jesus, in Revelation 19. Once again, there is no mention of the beast or Babylon repenting. This does not mean individual people during the tribulation will not repent, but major powers very rarely repent. This is also seen in the next chapter with the fall of Babylon. I think this is an important distinction to make. When it says that no one repented, I don't think the idea is that literally no human is repenting during this time period. Okay? The, the fact that heaven keeps filling up and more and more people accept Christ, um, why would God keep calling people to repentance and no one is ever going to repent? So when God sent Israel into Canaan, it was filled with the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Gigersites, the Rephaites, like all these people. There were ten nations total. And God said you were to wipe them out and kill them. But only those ten, period. And specifically as a judgment for their sin after hundreds and hundreds of years. God made it very clear they deserved to, re to die because in Genesis 15, he said, Abraham, the reason that you had to go out of the land for a while before I bring you back in is because the sin of the Amorites is not yet ripe, which means the Canaanites were already more evil than anything that you've ever encountered, more evil than anything that Hollywood has ever portrayed in a movie. And yet God says they don't deserve to die for at least another 400 years. That's how bad they had to get. Okay, If you really read the Bible you will find that the atheists like to rip verses out and say, there's your mean, cruel, vindictive, capricious God. But if you read in context, God is so patient, so patient, so gracious. After the golden calf, they are literally agreed to the law and agreed to obey. And God's literally right there in front of them on the mountain. And they worship a golden calf. And God says, I'm going to kill them all, which he had every right under the Mosaic covenant because they signed the contract. And they agree that you can kill us. If we don't obey you, we will obey you. And he had every right to do it. And Moses says, please forgive him. And God says, okay. It's not that hard to gain the forgiveness of God through faith and repentance. So God says that you're going to die. You're to kill them all. But that's not what we actually see. What we actually see is that God sends them after the major political cities the major kings. Joshua portrays a people who are incredibly faithful to God. They execute God's execution of the Canaanites to the exact way that God wanted it. And when it lists the killing and the defeats of all the people and Joshua, it basically says the king of, the king of, the king of, the powers, the heads. It talks about wiping out. Yet, over and over again, we see people like Rahab and her family escaping the judgment by faith and repentance. We're told that they conquered and destroyed all the cities, yet we're told that there's still Canaanites out there and living there. Eventually, we're told in the prophets that the Canaanites will make it into the kingdom of God. Jesus even heals a Canaanite woman. I don't think the picture of 
Deuteronomy of killing all the Canaanites literally meant killing every Canaanite. I think it meant killing the powers that be. Most people just follow. Now, I'm not going to die on this hill. I'm not going to, like, fight for this view. This is what I believe, but it's loosely based on some evidences here and there. But when you really look at the whole execution of this over multiple books, okay, from Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and so forth, really, Ruth doesn't have any of that, Samuel, and that kind of stuff, what you see is a direct attack on the powers that be. Even here when it talks about the kings fled into the mountains and they begged for the hailstones to fall on them, okay, this is what we see. I think the idea is if you write, if we pay attention to our country right now, most people just follow what the government or the media has to say. And by most people, I'm not thinking about an actual statistical percent or something, but we know that, that there's, there's that mob mentality, right? Read books like Revolt of the Masses by Jose Ortega, um, The Road to Serfdom by um, um, F.A. Hayek. These are Christians who wrote about group think and remote. And there's, there's studies that were done back in the 60s of what people will do in large groups. Most people just follow what the powers of the bee have to say. And once you get rid of the powers of the bee and cut their heads off and replace it with a more godly, a lot of people will follow that suit as well. And it doesn't mean everybody follows suit and everybody agrees with the machine, so to speak. But largely speaking, there is a, a sense of following. I feel safer if I don't have to take control of my own life and do every little thing and figure every little thing out and you do it for me. And I think that's the idea here. When it says that no one repented, it means the institutions, the powers that be, the thing, the group thinking that you're a part of. But it doesn't mean that the everyday normal person who's just living in their homes and just want a safe, comfortable family with their life and they haven't really taken power to the extreme, they haven't really completely sold out to the system, but they kind of are in a way, but they kind of are not because they're just lost and confused. A lot of people that you witness to are bought into the world, right? But the minute you share the gospel, they quickly repent. There's something in them that they, they know this isn't right. They know they're not happy. They want something better. They just haven't heard anything or the timing hasn't been right yet. And then you share the gospel and they just repent and accept Christ like that. And then there's other people who are like, no. And they're stubborn. They know what they believe. They don't care what you say. You're an idiot for what you believe. They're better than, right? And I think that's what God's talking about. Those who completely gave themselves over, they're the ones who are not repenting. But there are the people of the earth that are just following the world because they haven't really fully understood the gospel yet. And I don't think this is saying that in all this time period, either between the first and second coming of Christ, nobody's repented. We know that's not true. Or if you take it as a literal seven-year future, that no one repents in that seven years. I don't, I don't think that's... That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem right. And I think the idea here is that the, the machine, the people totally wrapped up in the machine, they're the ones who did not repent. But the people who are just kind of moving through life and haven't really thought through things, those are the ones who will repent. So the first section in this division is chapters 15 through 16. In this section, the final judgments of Yahweh are poured out on the kingdom of the beasts. Like the seals and the trumpets, the bold judgments are organized by four major judgments, followed by the two secondary judgments, and concluding with the final bowl, which brings only the storm and earthquake of Yahweh. 
with no unveiling of future judgments. The first four are poured out on the creation itself. The second two affect the beasts of this kingdom, of his kingdom. And the seventh leads to the fall of Babylon and the end of the beasts. This may be recapitulation of the seals and the trumpets, but goes further into the future with a sense of finality and completion in Yahweh's judgments on the earth, especially in the sixth and seventh plagues. There is a sense that the whole earth is affected and that it's a final judgment Then, since there's no mention of one-third being destroyed. So in this, I talked about the fact that I think that maybe the seals and the trumpets are recapitulations or spirals, that they're all happening simultaneously at, at different levels, and then they can be reset by repentance and revival, but then they carry out in judgments. But there is a sense that this last seven is some kind of final future. There is some sense that it, we like the rock, so to speak, has picked up a lot of speed going down the hill, and it's getting very close to the bottom, and there's no one doing this. There's no revival, no repentance. It's turning it back. The clock is coming to the second coming of Christ. And there is a sense, with the whole earth being affected, final judgments, there's no greater plagues that are unleashed after this, and it ends with the biggest earthquake and the biggest coming of God that we've seen. There's a sense that this is the final days. Whatever that means, whatever it looks like, I don't know. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another great and astounding sign in heaven. Seven angels of seven final plagues. They are the final because of them God's anger is completed. So there's a sense of finality and fulfillment even in that phrase. Then I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had conquered the beast and his image and the number of his name, they were standing by the sea of glass holding the harps given to them by God. Remember, this is not exactly the sea of glass as in placid calmness. This is a sea of crystal, meaning highly reflective because it's a sea of chaos. The chaos always represents. So remember, in chapter 4, the sea of chaos was before the throne of God. It represents the people who are opposed to God. It just represents humanity, who is chaos. And before the throne, God is sitting on the throne over creation. And before him is the chaotic humanity of earth. But now this chaotic sea is on fire. Judgment. Judgment. Now God is saying, I will no longer just let you spin and chaotic and destroy people and each other and do what you want and follow your heart and just have it your way anymore. This is the final complete of my anger. And now I am burning you. Not literally, but metaphorically. The fire that comes out of the throne of God in Daniel chapter 7 and consumes things. But notice that the believers have been extracted. We're a part of that sea. We live in the world. But now, between chapter 7 and chapter 14, with the sealing of the 144,000, the great multitude that are now in Mount Zion, when the sea finally burns, the believers are all standing next to the sea. We are not consumed in the judgment. We have been extracted. And just like Sodom and Gomorrah deserved to burn, but God found a little bit of righteousness left in Lot and his daughters. He extracted them. And then he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. He extracted Noah. And then he destroyed the world. He extracted Rahab and her family. And then destroyed Jericho. And now Christ is extracting the believers. And he's burning the sea of humanity, so to speak. They were standing by the sea, holding hearts given to them by God. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb. And so now we have this idea 
of them coming out of this, the plagues and the sea judgment like the Exodus. And they've been extracted and preserved from the sea collapsing upon them like Exodus. And so in Exodus, they leave in chapter 13 and 14 and they escape that judgment as the sea consumes Egypt. But then afterwards, Moses and Miriam, his sister, the prophetess, they sing a song to God praising him. And now they're singing to God and this new exodus, so to speak. Great and astounding are your deeds, Lord God, and all-powerful. Just and true are your ways. King over the nations, who will not fear you, O your Lord, and glorify your name, because you are alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, this was interesting. In chapter 4, we were introduced to Yahweh sitting on the throne, and they kept singing praises to Yahweh, and they praised Him for being creator of all things. Then in chapter 5, we're introduced to Jesus on the throne, the Lamb, and they sing praises to Him for Him redeeming and purchasing the believers. Now the believers are singing praises to God, and they're singing about His mighty deeds. The angels and the four living creatures and the elders... And Revelation 4, seeing about God being creator and sovereign over the earth. The believers here in chapter 15 are singing about the great deeds and the works of salvation that God has for them and what he has done. There's only two reasons that God ever gives you for why you should worship him and follow him. Because he created you and because he saved you. When God brings them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, he stands before them and says, I am your sovereign creator God, and I lifted you up on eagle's wings, salvation out of Egypt. Now, if you obey me, then I will make you a special treasure, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Those are the reasons that we give. He is God who created us, and he saved us. And so in chapter 4, they praise him for creator. And in chapter 15, they praise him for his works and deeds of saving them. This is their praise. All the nations will come and worship before you. Your righteous acts have been revealed. Once again, all the nations. All the nations are there. Verse 5. After these things I looked in the temple, the tent of testimony was open. Now notice it says the temple, but also the tent as in the tabernacle, as in a way that I'm using the language temple because that's what you understand as Jews, but I never really wanted a temple. Remember when I told David I don't want a temple? It's really a tent. That's really what it's meant. And when we get to Hebrews, Hebrews talks about the tabernacle is the blueprint in heaven. He never talks about the temple as a blueprint. So the tent was open in heaven. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple dressed in clean bright linen. White represents righteousness and victory, wearing white golden belts, glory, around their chest. And then one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God and with the lives forever. And the temple was filled with smoke from God's glory, from his power, and those no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues from the seven angels were completed. Now, I don't think this means that nobody was allowed to enter the temple of God. Oh, sorry, the blood of Christ didn't really actually get you into the presence. I think the idea is that it says no one's allowed to enter until he's finished judging the world. 
And so there's this sense where the wrath of God and the glory of God is so intense at this moment as it's being poured on the earth that the believers are just on the sidelines, so to speak, until everything is complete and everything is finished. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple declaring to the seven angels, Go and pour on the earth the seven bowls containing God's wrath. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. Then ugly, painful sores appeared on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. So the first plague pours out boils, okay, plagues, skin diseases on the people, and only the people who follow the beast. This is a, a recapitulation, well, not a recapitulation, it's a, a parallel to um, the plagues of Egypt. But the idea is that there were several, there were four things that made you unclean according to the book of Leviticus. Sin, and then things that sin produces. Dead bodies, skin diseases, and bodily discharges. That sounds fun. We're actually in that section of Leviticus right now in my high school, and so they're all like, ah. Oh. I was like, at least I'm just summarizing this. I can make you read all four chapters about bodily discharges if you really want to. So, um, so the idea here is, obviously, touching a dead body doesn't mean that you've sinned. Having a skin disease does not mean that you've sinned. Okay, having a bodily discharge does not mean you sin. But these things only exist because sin is in the world. They're the product. So what keeps you, makes you unclean? Sin and the byproducts of sin when you encounter them. And so with the boils, this is a skin disease. And the skin disease is a metaphor for sin and how it spreads throughout the body and just eats and kills and destroys. And so the idea is that these are people who are... In, contaminated and infiltrated with sin and rebellion because of falling the beast and now is being poured out on them and revealed for who they are and they're being consumed by these boils so to speak verse three next the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a corpse and every living creature that was in the sea died so this is once again the water into blood um notice it's not in the same order and the idea here is now all the creatures are dying of the sea. Then the third angel, verse 4, poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of the water, and they turned into blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are just the one who is and who was, the Holy One, because you have passed these judgments, because they poured out the blood of your saints and the prophets, so they have given blood to drink, and they got what they deserved. God is literally saying, You got what you deserved. Now God attacks the springs, the fresh waters. This is a mirror of what we saw with the trumpets, or one-third of the sea, one-third of the rivers, that kind of stuff. But now it's not one-third, it's the entirety of everything. And the idea is it's turning these things to blood, and everything is dying. Now this is an important commentary. You are just. These are harsh and severe judgments. But we talked about this. A lot of the reasons that we look at this and we think, oh my gosh, God, that is harsh and severe. Part of it is, you're right, it is harsh and severe. But part of it is, we don't fully understand how harsh and severe sin is and how horrid sin really is as sinners ourselves. And we don't realize how offensive it says, you're the one who is and who was. 
Now notice this is a repeat from chapter 4 where we're told the one who is and who was and to come. But now the to come is left out and it's the Holy One. And the implication here is it's not to come. He's here now. He has finally stepped into space, time, and matter to deal out his final judgments. But here's why God is ultimately just. How could God come into Egypt and kill the firstborn of all the Egyptians? Because the Egyptians did it to Israel. And you reap what you sow. What you do unto others will be done unto you in judgment. And so the idea here is because you, they poured out the blood of your saints and the prophets, so you've given them blood to drink, and they got what they deserve. They deserve this. They have clearly seen the revelation of God by this time. We have spent multiple thousand years, and maybe God knows how many other thousands of years, with the Bible prolific in the world, Jesus films, the stories of God, warnings from believers, prophets and believers coming in and warning and witnessing that kind of stuff. And God gives you every chance to be extracted and yet you're still, screw you, the high-handed sin. And God says, you deserve this. You deserve this. Verse 7, Then I heard the Ralter reply, Yes, Lord God, and all-powerful, your judgments are true and just. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was permitted to scorch the people with fire. Thus the people were scorched by the terrible heat, yet they blasphemed the name of God, who was ruling authority over these plagues, and they would not repent and give him glory. Now, he and, now before the sun went one-third dark, now it is being intensified to the point that is scorching people. Now this is important to understand. The sun has always been seen as a positive symbol in every culture without, throughout time. It has always been a symbol of life, of light, of growth. I mean, if you don't have light in your life, you literally will begin to go insane. Studies have shown that. You will cease to function in a normal way. And in all of creation, the sun is the most faithful thing, the sun and the moon are the most faithful thing in all of creation. Rains do not always come. Crops do not always grow. Animals are not always healthy. Children do not always survive. Birds do not always live. All the elements of creation seem to be subject to chaos, but the sun always faithfully rises every day. It may be covered by the clouds on some days, but it is always there, always giving life. Without it, we would all die. This is why the sun is so worshipped in so many cultures. And now God has taken one of the greatest images of their deity, of their sense of idolatry, of a sense of blessing of creation, and turning it against them, scorching them with the radiation of the sun. And fire represents judgment. All of creation is turning against its people. We remain the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 says, Let us make man, humankind, in our own image to rule and subdue. Then he created them, male and female, in the image of God. 
And then when he did that, he commanded them to rule and subdue, make creation look like God, and be fruitful and multiply. Multiply the image and send it out to make it look like God. And we rebelled. And when we rebelled, creation had no good ruler and subduer over anymore. We decided to follow our own desires, our own pleasures, do what we want, have it our way, and function in a way that is autonomous away from God. And if you do not take care of yourself and take care of your house and take care of your car, it will begin to fall apart. If you think, oh, I know how to do a car better than the makers of the car. I will treat the car the way I want to. I will follow my heart. Then it will begin to fall apart. And when it falls apart, you will lose control and it will affect other people. And that's what's happened to creation. Creation's falling apart because we're not ruling us for doing it. And if you kick a dog enough times, eventually it will turn on you and bite you. And that's what's happening. God is allowing creation to rear its head up and bite humanity back in return for what creation, the humanity has done to creation. You have to understand, God is not just redeeming humans. He's redeeming creation. There are multiple passages where it talks about the fact that God is redeeming animals, redeeming creation. Now, I'm not saying do what Francis of Assisi did, St. Francis of Assisi, and go out and witness the birds and animals and try to lead them to Christ. That's not the point. The point is bring them back into the alignment of God, the way that they were designed to function. It turns on them. Verse 10, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beasts, so that darkness covered his kingdom. And the people began to bite their tongues because of their pain. They blasphemed God of heaven because of their suffering and because of their sores. But nevertheless, they still refused to repent of their deeds. So now he's plunging the kingdom of the beasts into the darkness. This clearly affects the people of the world and not the believers because we're not a part of the kingdom of the beasts. Just like he plunged Egypt into darkness, but Israel still saw light. And so he's plunging it, and they turn, and now they're reaping the fullness of their consequences. First, the sun turns from a source of blessing to torment, and then all light goes out in their life, and it becomes so dark in their minds, or literally in creation, that they bite their tongues and they gnash their teeth. This is an image of just ultimate torment. And once again, all throughout the Bible, this torment is a psychological, spiritual torment here that we have. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and dried up its water to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Then I saw three unclean spirits that looked like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophets. For they were the spirits of the demons performing signs who go out to the kings of the earth to bring them together for the battle that will take place on the great day of God, the all-powerful. So now he pours it out and he dries up the river Euphrates. What does that mean? The river Euphrates was a very large river. It is a very large river. And the idea, we talked about this before with the four angels at the river Euphrates, is that everything that is great and powerful and is absolutely scary that comes down and tortures and conquests and and takes into exile Israel always comes from the Euphrates River. And so the idea is that those kingdoms are being dried up. They need that water for life. And now even the most ultimate, most powerful kingdoms, Babylon, that is the scariest thing, is being dried up and being sucked of its resources. And then 
the dragon and the beast spew out frogs out of their mouths. And it says, these are the demons. Now the idea is frogs are this, once again, this goes back to the plagues, the frogs, but frogs are unclean, according to Leviticus. And all throughout the Bible, spirits that possess you or torment you or however you want to theologically view possession, um, demonize you, whatever word you choose, those are always called unclean spirits. And so their words are now revealed to be demonic. In case you ever thought that they had your good intentions in mind and the media and the propaganda machine really cared about you or promising you like life and prosperity, it's really absolutely truly demonic. It's not fake news. It's demonic news. And that's the idea here. And so these are the voices, the message that has misled the people. And it is truly demonic. And then these demons go out to bring them together. um, For they are the spirits of the demons performing signs who go out to the kings of the earth to bring them together for the battle that will take place on the great day of all all powerful. They will then go out and in one last ditch effort to protect themselves, they will gather an army of all the kings that are left. There's still going to be some people who say, I'm willing to try to kill the people of God and destroy the kingdom of God. Look, I will come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays alert and does not lose his clothes so that they will not have to walk around naked in a shameful condition be seen. So God says, I'm coming like a thief. You will never know when I'm coming. You will never suspect it. There will no, be no, the idea of coming like a thief is there will be no signs. There will be no warnings. It will come when you least expect it. Blessed are those who do not go around naked meaning that they have just become immoral, inappropriate. They've exposed themselves. They have gotten rid of the things. They will be part of the kingdom of God. Now the spirits gathered the kings and their armies at the places called Armageddon in Hebrew. Armageddon. This is the final battle, so to speak. Armageddon comes from a Hebrew word, Armageddon. Armageddon, which literally means the Mount of Megiddo. The Mount of Megiddo. This is the idea of Armageddon in the final battle. Many people believe that there will be some future battle literally at this mountain or this hill. And this city, Megiddo, is a very prominent city all throughout Israelite history. It shows up multiple times. Megiddo was a city in the northern part of Israel, and it had a valley. The, the closest city to it other than Megiddo was Jezreel, Jezreel was made the capital of the ten king tribes of the north, Israel. It's where Ahab and his wife Jezebel lived and did a lot of horrid bad things there. It's right off of Jezreel, 13 miles away, that the battle of Mount Carmel happened. And between Mount Carmel and Jezreel, around Megiddo, there was a valley of Jezreel. And the valley of Jezreel is where lots of people died, and multiple times. It was the major entrance into Israel from the north. So when the kings of Euphrates would come down and enter in through the north, they would come in through this valley region. And because there were that, it led to many, many, many battles. And so many people have died in that valley. Not only that, Jehu went out and massacred tons of people in the valley of Jezreel. And Malachi says, I will pay Israel back for Jehu's massacre in that valley. 
And so this is a place where a lot of people have died. A lot of wars have been fought, both in armies trying to exert their power and conquest, as well as corrupt kings genociding, well, not a people group, but a particular family of people. And so the idea there's a lot of blood. This could refer to some great final battle that will happen in the future, or it could just refer to the fact that there will be many, 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 many battles throughout human history that will be about kingdoms exerting their power and massacring people. Um, what's interesting is it's called Mount Megiddo, but there's no mountain really anywhere close to Megiddo. There's no mountain really anywhere close to Megiddo. And we've talked about the fact that mountains represent kingdoms in the First Testament. They're a metaphor for kingdoms. And so this could just refer to the kingdom of Megiddo will collapse, meaning the king, the powers that be up there, Ahab and Jezebel were the epitome of the greatest power of Israel that was so corrupted that they did these horrid evils. They were considered the wickedest kings and queens that Israel has ever had other than Manasseh himself. And the idea is it could just be that the most ultimate kingdoms of ultimate wickedness will be dealt with and completely destroyed. Or it could literally refer to some final battle one day. So I am not really willing to really go into any direction on that one. Um, you might be willing, and that's fine, but I'm just not completely sure. Most likely this is taken from the apocalyptic text of Ezekiel 38 through 39. Ezekiel, we'll talk about this later, a lot more in the, next, the following chapters, but there's, um, there's a nation called Gog, and Gog is not a literal nation in Ezekiel 20, 38 through 39. It's pretty clear. He's, a, he's an algamation, a conglomerate of many nations. And God just, and we'll talk about that a lot more. So if you're like, I oh, don't just put it, pause, and we'll get to that when we get to um, chapter 21, or 20 or 21. I'm going blank on that now. 20. In it, we have a metaphor of God killing Gog multiple times. He kills him with fire. He kills him with an earthquake. He kills him with birds and animals eating them, that kind of stuff. He just is like, kill, 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 kill. And I think the idea is that God doesn't do a good job in killing him. He's like, oh, crap. He's like a zombie. He gets back up again. I had to kill him again. And it's not the idea that God's resurrecting him just to kill him again. The idea is that he's going to die. And God is bringing every judgment that he can possibly think against him to make sure that the death is absolute final. And most importantly, that you realize that this is not just a natural death or just life happens and crap happens, that he is definitely dying at the hands of God. And the idea here is that this is being taken from that apocalyptic image of the nations of the world being destroyed and eliminated. And there's a sense that Gog um, is a future thing. So verse 17, Finally the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. Then there were flashes of lightning, roaring and crashes of thunder, and there was a tremendous earthquake, an earthquake unequal since humanity has been on the earth. So tremendous was the earthquake, the great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations collapsed, the great cities Babylon. So Babylon the great was remembered before God and was given the cup filled with the wine made of God's fierce wrath. I think the idea of it being split into three parts is not God's like literally, I'm going to split into three parts. Three is redemption. And I think it's saying that the world's redemption is finally coming as Babylon is being destroyed. As Babylon is destroyed. Then Babylon is handed the cup of God's wrath and fury, the mixed and undiluted cup that he talked about. 
So it was remembered. God remembered it, not like, let us remember Babylon today. But God remembered that it was time to destroy it. And remembered in the Bible never means like God is like, oh, crap, I forgot about that. Remember when Noah's on the ark for 150 days and it said, God, remember? It's not like God's over here doing his thing in heaven. He's like, oh, my gosh, that's right, Noah. <laughs> I meant to get him out of the water after 50 days, not 150. The, the idea is when if I promise to take you out for ice cream, I'm not going to, and I say, I remembered my promise, now let's go get it. I'm not imp- necessarily implying I forgot and I remember. I'm saying I know that I promise it's time to put it into action. And so when God remembered Babylon, he remembered that it's time to put the cup of God's wrath into action. Pinch the nose, open the mouth, pour it down. He filled with the wine made of God's furious wrath. Every island fled away and no mountains could be found. The gigantic hailstones weighing about a hundred pounds each fell from heaven on the people, but they blasphemed God because of the plagues and the hail, since it was so horrendous. I don't really think that this is literally all mountains are going to collapse and all the islands are going to disappear. I just don't think that God's going to do that to his creation. Um, There's this idea all throughout the Bible that God is punishing humanity for sins, not that he's going to destroy creation because we messed up. We'll talk about this more when we get to chapter 21. But remember, all throughout the First Testament, I've given you lots of passages earlier when we were in chapter 8 and 9 when we were going through the trumpets. I give you multiple passages where mountains are used over and over and over again referring metaphorically to kingdoms. This is very clear from these passages in Hosea and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Joel and Amos that when he's talking about collapsing mountains, one, he says that he has collapsed the mountains. He's going to collapse the mountains when he brings them back out of exile or when he brings the Assyrians. The Assyrians will come and collapse the mountains. The Babylonians will come and collapse the mountains. None of that literally happened ever in all of history. The prophets make it clear that it did happen and that it's going to happen when the Assyrians and Babylonians came and therefore it did happen when they came. But it's clear that he's bringing them to destroy kingdoms. They're going to collapse mountains. Islands are used to refer to those far away kingdoms. The teeny little kingdoms, they're in the middle of nowhere that's hard to get to. And what God is saying is he's going to make every island flee and wipe them all out. Meaning, I don't care how small and how far away you are and how teeny of a little island you are out there, Fiji and the Cook Islands and all that kind of stuff. And you think because everybody else forgot about you that God has, everyone is going to come under judgment. And the idea is the king of the hill, the cosmic mountain, mountains always refer to power and abuse of power. And so God is saying, I don't care how high you are, I'm bringing you down. And I don't care how far out there that nobody thinks about you. I'm bringing you down. Everybody is going to come under the wrath of God that has not given themselves over to the Lamb. And that's the main idea here. Not that God is saying, oh, by the way, I'm destroying my creation for God only knows why because he doesn't tell us why in the world if you're judging the world for sin do you feel it necessary to destroy mountains and islands? What is that accomplishing? If it is accomplishing something, and this is all about sin of humans, 
then Revelation should be telling us why God is doing this. But if you see that it's always been used as metaphors for the highest kingdoms and the farthest kingdoms away, then that makes sense. No matter how you are horizontally or vertically, God is going to deal with you. And the hailstones go back to Sodom and Gomorrah and Egypt, meaning that it's all coming down from heaven. It's all coming down from heaven. And yet, despite, they did not repent. They did not repent. This is the danger of having power. We know Lord Acton's phrase, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But I would like to add something else to that. The more corrupted with power that you are, and the higher you are, the less likely you're going to repent when God comes into your presence. And I'm not saying you can't repent. When Paul went to the Greeks, many of the Roman and Greek officials repented and came to Christ. There were Pharisees that turned to Christ. But Jesus did make it clear that it is harder for a rich man to get into heaven than to take an animal through the eye of a needle. Because the more powerful you are, the more wealthy you are, the more you have become so confident in your own ability and you've been successful, the less likely you are to see your need for God. And there's a danger in that. And God is pointing out here that this danger could be so severe that when he finally comes like a thief in the night and he appears on your doorstep, you may never repent because you've turn so far away from him on your mountain and then on your island of power and self-sufficiency. And that's, that's the scary part. That's the scary part. Now it says that there was an earthquake and a storm like no one has ever seen. Now that could be literal or it could be metaphorical. Now don't get me wrong. I do think that this is the final days of judgment earthquake. It is very clear. The kingdom of the beast is thrown in darkness. Everything is being destroyed. Everything is collapsing. But I really think the idea here, all throughout the Bible, earthquakes and storms are metaphorical of God breaking into space, time, and matter to do something significant. So when God breaks into space, time, and matter and comes down to Mount Sinai, he does a significant thing of giving them the Mosaic Covenant. Then God says, on that day, I will come with a great earthquake and a storm wrapped around me, and I will bring the Assyrians to take you into exile. He says it again about the Babylonians. When Job says, I worship you, God, and I will not turn my back on you, but you're unjust, and you have no right to do this to me. It says God came to him in the whirlwind. He broke into space, time, and matter. And when he began to speak to Job, Job covered his mouth and said, I spoke once and I'm an idiot and I will cover my mouth and not speak a second time. Okay? You see this over and over again. I think there could be a literal earthquake and fire like there was on Mount Sinai when God broke in, but it wasn't literal when he came with the Assyrians. Micah begins with a great earthquake and the fire and the storm of God breaking in to bring the judgment on Israel through the Babylonians. I think the main idea, they could be literal, but I think the main idea 
is that God is going to break into space, time, and matter in a way that we have never seen him before. Why? Because this is the coming of God. This is the coming of Christ. And we're going to see God in this moment break into human history in a way that we've never seen him break in before. Because this is coming to the end. We have just finalized all the plagues. So we talked about that there were 21 judgments. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls or vials. Some of the old translations say vials. Okay? Um, Like what your blood is put in when you go give blood to the doctor. So... And that those equal 21 total, but it really should be understood as 777. And so the main idea here, once again, we talked about this, is 7 is the number of completion, 3 is the number of redemption. With these judgments, God completes the redemption of the world. The seals were all going way, way, way back to chapter 5. When he took the scroll with the seven seals, that was the title deed to the earth. It was God's promises to take back the earth, to redeem the earth, and to redeem the people and restore the kingdom of God. And now with 777, we have seen the completion of God's redemption. It is finished. It is done. Not completely, because now we have yet to Christ arrive, but the stage has been set for Jesus' arrival. In contrast to that, the world has been bucking back at Jesus and has been bucking back through the beast and the false prophet. And it bucked back in the sense of 666. So six is one less of seven, completion, and three is redemption. So the world keeps offering a false or incomplete redemption. Come follow me. I will make things great again. I will heal you. I will bring salvation. I will whatever, whatever. I'll bring hope and I'll bring change. And, but yet they keep failing and failing and failing. And that, that can either be a political machine offering a utopian society politically. It could be a, a religious leader offering you a salvation in some kind of way. Or that could be you and your own works that I will redeem and save myself in some kind of way. But that is the mark of man. The mark of man is 666. And when man goes to that in the most extreme sense, according to Daniel 7, the man or woman becomes the beast. All the beast is is humanity at its most Vile. It's most extreme of trying to become its own God and save itself. And so these are the two things that we saw throughout the plagues, throughout the judgments. We saw humanity rising up and becoming increasingly the beast. And many, 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 many people in the world are not the beast in its fullest. They're, they're just they're everyday normal people who want to have a comfortable, um, happy, safe non-rejected life with their family and and then then there's the the machine the political machine the propaganda machine that tries to suck them in and many people buy into it and many people don't buy into it even when they don't buy into it they don't know what else to do how do i resist this what do i do what are the other options and they just allow themselves to be carried and so that's where christ sends the church the church is meant to come into their lives and help them see that there is an alternative, and not just an alternative, the original thing. 
and the thing that is far superior and greater than all other things, which is the whole point of the book of Hebrews, is that Christ is superior to all things and the only one worthy of the object of our faith. These are the two systems. They've always been the lofty city and the true city of God. And these have always been the two systems that are warring with each other, so to speak. And not in an equally balanced who's going to win kind of a sense, um, but just in what, who will you give your allegiance to? Who will you bow down to? And who will you serve? Kind of a sense. And the world will reveal itself, and Christ will reveal itself, and you have a choice. You have a choice. But the institutions, the government, the propaganda, they will rise up and they are defeated. That's what we're coming into chapter 17. 